three years off the booze this week, though. It's a big deal. How are you feeling? Pretty good. Like I feel, I feel happy about it. I was thinking about it during the week, and I was kind of thinking, it's such a personal milestone. And I was thinking, oh, well, the, the, the podcast intros are coming up. Do I share that? It's quite an intimate detail about my life. Uh, to talk about alcoholism, and it's a bit of a bit of a downer to have a start of a as a start of a, a chat. And then I, it just it reminded me of I probably I would have quit a year earlier. It's pretty much a year to the same day. Just coincidentally, if it, this GP that I went to see about it had had have acted different, and I just kind of had this feeling like you know what I, I need to just tell my story, just in case there's somebody like for anyone who's not affected by this, this doesn't doesn't matter. This is just a story. But really, I thought if there's if if me is listening to this where I was, then I want them to hear this story because. So what happened? There was a pivotal, well, a pivotal funny thing that helped me change, and I'll, I'll go into this some other time, but it was actually Craig Ferguson did a bit on his late night show about Britney Spears once, and that stuck with me. And he just talked about his experience, and that stuck with me. It actually played a role with me getting sober. And yeah, this, this, uh, what happened to me was I knew for a while I need to give up. I'm, I'm an alcoholic, keeping it to myself. And then I went, I was on the train one day, and the thing when you're, when you're an alcohol a lot of times you have a hangover and that brings depression which is not very good so I'm on the tram and I'm like I gotta go I'm going to the doctor so I ran the doctor went down this guy was great and I said mate I heard about this thing called naltrexone I think it was called which is a drug which makes you not want to drink or it means you can drink but you don't want to drink all of the drink <laughs> which is one of the big problems so to my ears this seemed like a a way of being able to get on top of it. I was going to Ireland. I was due to be going to Ireland in a few weeks. So I thought, if I can get on this stuff, that means I can go to Ireland. I won't have to go through the embarrassment of saying I'm an alcoholic and I don't drink anymore. All this kind of, all these hang-ups already on a depressed person. You're then dealing with pretty heavy thoughts of self-worth, which is, when you get perspective, you realise that's fine. Anyway, I go see this doctor and the doctor says, yeah, look, brilliant. Great, you want to get on top of this, Darren. Uh... I need you to go get some bloods done before I can prescribe anything to you. And I left and I, I kind of felt like someone had shown me there's a window at the end of this road and you're going to be able to climb through that and there's a new beginning on the other side of it. Be good, right? Go get your bloods done. Get the results back. Hopefully you'll be on this medication and you may cross this this precipice. So fast forward a week, let's say, and I go back and this guy's on holiday and I go into this next GP and she asked me what's going on I said I want to get want to find out what happened with my bloods uh, I was hoping to get on an ultraxone she said I'm not prescribing that she goes you need to go to a rehab clinic I want you to go to a drug and rehab clinic now for me my world fell apart internally like you know in movies when you kind of hear a high pitched and the people are still talking that's what happened mm-hmm. a bomb went off I was now being confronted with the, with the thought of going to a rehab clinic and maybe there's prejudice in here in me too like it was in a, a kind of rougher end of of Melbourne near housing commissions oh for me it was just and like where I worked was a huge heroin problem too on the streets so I was just thinking I'm not I'm, I, I can't do that like that's not me that's exactly the thing I was afraid of so I, I drank for another year because of that moment I said not because of that moment but that moment I, I was ready I was just I was looking for someone to help and to take me to the next step so and why did you not go back to the GP 
my confidence was shot. I was just, I was gone. I just, and I lost the momentum as well. And about a year later was when I, I eventually, just on my own, I, I started admitting, I didn't even admit it. I admitted it more to myself openly and I said, you know, if anyone asks me why I'm stopped drinking, I'm saying I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I need to stop and I'll see if that has an effect. Will it shame me into continuing not drinking? And it kind of did, and I don't only really use the word shame to throw away, but it really kind of did. By me saying it, I went, yeah, I am an alcoholic. And owning it gave me ownership of the next steps to be able to move on. How, I mean, this will sound like a ridiculous question, but how did you know you're an alcoholic? Because you're drinking all the time and you crave it all the time. Not all the time. Like I, I wasn't a day drinker. Never drank during the day. No time. I'd, I'd have a, a six pack of like you know, Cooper's Stout, which is a very like six point eight percent stout. Could have six pack of that every night, easy. Maybe a bottle of wine on top of that. Mm. You, it, you, you know, it takes a long time before you fully know that you're fucked. Like you can go a long time just thinking, yeah, I'm fine. Then you're still an alcoholic at that stage. But it takes a while before you you kind of go. I'm in the grips of this. I can't, I can't get it. I I can't win over myself. And it's it's it's, it's a anyway. I don't want to go down into kind of like it, it, this is a positive thing, right? I'm three yeah. years old. I'm, like, that decision to change and stop drinking for me changed my life. I'm so happy I did. I'm so lucky that I was able to get past that hiccup. Do I want that extra year that I could have had? Sometimes I think, God damn it, yeah, but. It didn't happen, right? So my message really to anyone that w- might get value out of this, the same as I did from uh, Craig Ferguson's chat on his late night show, was just there, or, there are other experiences out there. And when you when it's time, when it's time, try and get help. Don't let a little knockback like what I got send you too far off because it could end up costing you a year like it cost me. Mm. So that's that. Look, I'm, I'm I'm chuffed. That kind of felt a little bit like oh boohoo me. But what I wanted to get out of it is, I'm bloody, I'm bloody really happy that I achieved that, and I've, I'll continue to achieve it. Does it? Do you still um, feel like uh like you want to drink completely? Yeah. But it not not like um, it's very it's different than an addiction. It's not a physical yeah, craving. Yeah. It's more like. So oh, if I'd you, love to have a cold pint and a yeah. yeah. It's more element like uh, you know like like this little upset my wife, but I can't think of a better one. But like it's kind of like you've got an ex girlfriend, you don't want to get back with that person, but you remember the good times, and you kind of go, "What if?" And that you know that that's not you know the life you have now is the your best life, but there's no there's no, nothing wrong with kind of looking at that previous feeling of life, kind of going. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh, I enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, you can always spin around in circles and fall down. Mm. <laughs> uh, anyway. Well, thanks for being sober since I've met you. Yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. Yeah, it's tougher for Dom to be a friend of an alcoholic it's than you me to be an alcoholic <laughs> <laughs> with the sober. Friend. Yeah. Right. Anyway, that's enough about the that's enough of the me show. I just want to celebrate. That's what it really is. Good on you. And if it helps anyone, then brilliant. So this week's episode is an interview with Dahi Gormley and Dahi is a phenomenal musician and an incredible historian of the music and I was 
just totally blown away by this conversation because it, it hits a lot of the sweet spots that have always preoccupied me about history and the ephemeral nature of human existence and all that stuff. So we talk a lot about um, a couple of players, James Morrison and Michael Coleman, who many of you will know as the really significant early uh, players of Irish music who were recorded, um, both of them, when they were based in the United States. So I just want to give you a heads up about that's who we're talking about as we get into this. And uh, I don't think there's any point in hanging about because... Well, no, there is one little story I want to tell. Oh, yeah, actually about Dahi and about my dad. The way I actually found out about Dahi, this is a weird one. So as most listeners will know, I'm still learning the ropes, so I don't know every player that's out there. What, what happened was I found online these guys called Irish Music Legends. And they're two Italian fellas, and they do these amazing lino prints of Irish music legends. So I found their site and their Instagram, and I love like they've probably got about fifty prints, and they're doing an exhibition in the cobblestone. So I'm looking at them, and I kind of go, I'm whittling it down, and I had it down to like a short list of ten. And anyway, Dahi was one of the ones that was on this short list, and I got it. Now. It turns out I, I, I was picking them up in Ireland. I was going to get them sent out to Australia, but I was in Ireland and I was going to pick them up myself. And I showed them to my dad and I said, like, you pick whatever one you want. Now, the only one that my wife had picked out was Dahi's <laughs> one. She just loved the aesthetic of it. And my dad straight away went, that's the one. I'd love to have that. I actually hadn't heard of Dahi before that. So I went and checked them out since and that's how I found out about him. So I was blown away. So I, I love the fact that I was... I met him first through a different artwork, which wasn't his, that led me to him just because of the aesthetics of that to then find how amazing he is for yeah. his music. So it was a lovely little come around to when I actually first got talking to Dohi in, in preparation for this interview to say, I actually only know you because of the Irish Music Legends guys. <laughs> They're the guys that a couple of weeks ago I posted some photographs on uh, on our Facebook. They're the guys that do that. So they're a small independent group of lads. Show them some love. Yeah, um, I reckon. Should we just get into it? Enjoy. Dahi Gormley, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thanks very much. So, what did we just what did we just hear? 
Well, that, that was um, a, a very old reel called Last Night's Fun, and it's the very first tune I ever remember hearing. Um, my grandfather used to play it, and he would have been my... my um, it's my first introduction to the accordion, you know, had he been... I'd have spent an awful lot of time there when I was young, and it must have be, surely been his favourite reel. He played it so often, I'd say. You know, it's funny that it's funny that you started with that because I was listening to Joe Cooley's version of that this afternoon, and um, you know the 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 album cover with him with a cigarette. Oh yeah, yeah, very stylish. That's a mad album. It's oh, just, it's fantastic. Yeah, it just kind of jumps out at you, right from the. <laughs> Yeah, J- J- Joe was a real kick you in the chest kind of accordion player. It just hit you. <laughs> and the the um his version of that tune, right? Um, just had a I don't know if it was that particular recording that I was listening to. It just had a really different um, uh, like a I don't know. I felt like it was kind of going underwater or something. Like the, the <laughs> something something about it was just. Are you talking like production value wise or what? Uh, no, I'm actually talking about the melody, and I'm sure it was a combination of the recording and the and um, his version of the melody that it just seemed to kind of go really deep, you know. Uh, like, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, he, he was an amazingly creative player, Joe. Um, of course, he was playing a D and D sharp accordion, so it was up in E flat straight away, which always makes it kind of nice and bright. Joe had an amazing take on really simple tunes like the melody of last night's fun. It's a simple tune, but he took it and he turned it upside down, but never getting away from the basic melody. It was a it's a rare trick to be able to change it to a tune totally, but yet never lose the core of it. You know, he, he was a, an amazing player. That, that was such an interesting album. Most of that album was recorded only only a couple of weeks before Joe Cooley died. He was dying of cancer at the time. And to, to hear such creativity and such flair and, and such, such heart in the music in, in your last weeks of life is, is just incredible. There's so much to be learned from it, yes, and it must be surely nearly 50 years since it was brought out first. Aye. Do you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm sure you're familiar with Kieran Carson's book, Last Night's Fun. Oh, yes, yeah. At the end of that, he talks. He he starts off talking. I think he begins the book talking about that album, and he begins. He ends at the last page talking about remembering, listening to that album, and seeing Joe Cooley with the, as he calls it, the fatal cigarette between his lips, and listening to what's going on in the background because there's so much noise in the recording. There's so much noise. There's people and there's glasses and stuff, and it's just a. The like the music comes through out of all this other signal, you so know. Did I, was Joe was Joe aware of his of, of his situation when he recorded that? You know, did he? Know oh, he I, was, I think he was. He was yeah, I, I think he was. I seen a, a great. Uh, they done a, a Care A program presented by Tony McMahon on TG Cahar. It's some years ago, but Trina Nidonal, the piano player and singer that would have been famous with the Bathy Band now, she she actually worked on the production. And she says at one stage, you know, Joe kind of, he kind of turns sideways and she says, are you in pain, Joe? And he said it to kill a dog. So he, he knew exactly what was happening or seemed to know at the time anyway, you know, but yeah. just the heart and love of the music, I suppose, kept him going as it did for so many people over the years. Yeah, interesting, interesting moment. But, uh, well, I'll, I'll share. I, um, I actually only yesterday had a chat with Dom about this. And I, I'm only going to bring it up because it's so recent. I was listening to David Bowie's um, 
last album and it was the the last tune on his last album which is a tune called um oh, it's a song called uh, i can't give everything away i don't know if you're a bowie fan but anyway the the crux of the song he's singing about this secret or it's something that he can't give it away can't give away he's also saying he can't give away this life and it's a masterpiece of someone saying goodbye as a work of art and so whatever that was maybe two or three years ago when he passed away and then yesterday i was listening to the 1977 album low and on that there's a tune does it there is a tune it's an instrumental called uh, a new career in a new town and it hit me that the harmonica that he used in the very last song he was going to release was the same harmonica he used in a song called a new career in a new town and i don't mean the same harmonica i'm talking about the same melody so right for someone in those last moments to to be crafting an art piece to to leave for for everyone else to not 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 just to have but also to to tackle death after they're gone is a, yeah, it's a powerful it's incredible. thing. Yeah, it it just shows the power of music and simple things can have such huge meaning, and and that's something I think a lot of people don't don't realize just how much meaning can be in a simple tune or a simple part of a tune. There's there's so much history behind it. And like you, you had mentioned that the reason you played that song is because it's the first one you mentioned from your your granddad. And I think when we were speaking uh, last week, you, you, you said that you remember him, but you were quite young when he passed. Yeah, he died in 1996 and I was just, um, I was nearly six when he died. And, uh, but I remember him very, very well. When my parents were at work, I, I would have spent all my time up with, um, up with him. He would have kind of minded me. My grandmother would have been at work at the same time. He was always home. He was a farmer. But um, constantly there was always music playing. And if it wasn't playing on a tape or the radio, he was playing himself. Or if he wasn't playing, he was surely whistling. And it was just, um, it, it was such great exposure to, to, I suppose, to high quality music. He, accordion would have been his thing. And he would have been listening to a lot of, um, I suppose, the big players of the 60s and 70s. And, and late 50s was always where his heart lay. And to a certain extent where my own heart lies players like John Bow in London an amazing player and of course Finbar Dwyer and Joe Burke and I think his hero was absolutely Paddy O'Brien the very famous accordion player from um, Port Row outside Nina in Tipperary and it was such a great um, it wasn't for for years later and maybe a decade later that I realised how much of this had had obviously been sinking in and how much it moulded my own taste and want and need to play music i suppose and especially to play the accordion and just for anyone who's kind of more like me and is still on the ropes with kind of learning about the tradition so what what was your grand granddad's name his name was david chardon and uh, he, he came from the townland actually i still live in a townland called la valley just in, in east county sligo and la valley was an amazingly musical area um, at one stage there was 48 different musicians and singers all living almost simultaneously within about a three mile radius it was such a hugely musical area um, it was a very poor area and like the land wouldn't have been at that of that higher quality so i suppose they had probably a little bit more time for music than if you were living on a big farm with better land where you had more to do so it was all that comes into play as well that is a phenomenal amount of players in one area. A huge amount, and, and, and mostly melodians, but also some fiddles and flutes, which was mostly melodians. And of course, they carried on to the next generation, say, my grandfathers all played accordions. 
Right, so he was in, was he a melodian or, or accordion player? He he, he was an, a, an accordion player. His father, now Michael Sheridan, was an amazing melodian player and a single role player, and had an amazing store of old tunes. We have some recordings of him that was done in in towards the end of his life in the nineteen seventies. But he, he was an amazingly creative player as well, which just showed like he was born in about eighteen ninety, and uh, it just showed the 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 flair and the quality of music that was definitely there in his youth because of course he like most of that generation they wouldn't have travelled far they wouldn't have gone 20 miles until they were 30 years of age so they, they um, I suppose the recordings of him is a great insight into the quality of the music that was in that whole area at that time and what's the reason like is there a reason or a rationale apart from like you mentioned the land and not being as, as good and maybe people having more time but is there any other factors that would play into that area being so rich I suppose a, a lot of it and a, a lot of things with music I think sometimes a lot of it is fashion and you kind of strive to do what your peers are doing and I think it maybe if a lot of your peers are all playing and that was the primary pastime around the area it may have been it wouldn't have been an uncool thing to do to play music it might have been it might it might have just been a natural progression for people if people all came to your house two nights a week and played music it was maybe inevitable that you'd take off a melodion or a flute or a fiddle at some stage and try and play a tune as well yeah it's like the the street that has all the kids that are always out playing soccer or playing well that was when i was growing up <laughs> and you go around and you go oh no i'm gonna get exactly if you came from kilkenny it would hard to get away without being trying to hurl at some stage you know <laughs> <laughs> And with David, was there any ever any recordings made of him? Oh yeah, yeah, lots of recordings. They're never commercial, but he was um, he played very extensively uh, from I suppose when he when he was in his twenties and in the late fifties on. He um, he played a lot with uh, Josie McDermott, the famous flute player and composer and singer. And they, they would have been part of a band for many years called Josie McDermott and the Flinsmen that was made up of himself on accordion, Josie on the flute and uh, the saxophone and a great fiddle player called Tommy Flynn who came from Loch Arrow on the fiddle and uh, Josie McDermott and Flinsmen. And they, they travelled the country playing and they would have made several Cayley House broadcasts and they actually were to record an album at some stage in, in the 1970s, but the deal fell through or something. There was some kind of a strike in London where they were going to record it. And of course, it was shelved and never happened again, which was a great pity. But I have a recording that was made shortly before that of them practising for it. And it would have been would have been great music. It's a great shame it never came out. How much how much do you have? Have you got a, a few tunes or a few songs or just a snippets? Oh, no, I'd have a lot. Oh, of of him playing, I'd say, oh, I'd easily have maybe 40 or 50 hours now if you added it all oh, up. Oh, wow. Yeah. My grandmother was great. Pauline, uh, she's still alive now, D- David's wife, but she was great for recording and she, she made a, she always had a tape recorder with her. So everywhere they were playing, there'd be recordings of them in pubs or house sessions or concerts. So it would have mostly all came from her recordings now. Lovely. Did, did she play? No, she didn't, but she was a great singer. And uh, she, she, she would have sang in show bands. She actually sang in a show band with Josie McDermott in the 50s called The Westerners. And, uh, but she had a great store of old songs and, and a great head for music. And uh, she, she knows all the tunes and she'd be able to tell you the name of the tunes, which was amazing as well. And she, she used to say, like, if my grandfather was learning a tune and he couldn't get the turn of us, he'd say, whistle the end of that, Pauline. And she'd whistle it and he'd get it then. <laughs> She'd, <laughs> she'd know the tunes and she never played a note in her life she played a bit in the bar on but yeah. never played a melody instrument and so and 
that's your father's side of the family. And my, right? my mother's. Oh, that's your mother's side of the family. And then what about what about your father's side? There was well, the the the, the wouldn't have played a tape recorder now. There was no um, <laughs> there, there was no music at all in them. Uh, my grandfather had an uncle, and he came from uh, Coot Hall, just uh, uh, not too far across the Roscommon border now. But um, he came a place, but there was a neighbour there who used to play the fiddle, and he, his Jimmy was his name, and and he was saying to my grandfather one time, Jesus Christ, what would a grown man want to play a fiddle for? <laughs> it was something for kids but there was no music in the Gormleys but my um, my grandmother w- was very musical and she just passed away in January but her um, her mother was a, a reputedly a very good fiddle player she came from the heart of South Sligo a place called Renbon just outside uh, Ballinacarrow and uh, they, they had great musical connections they were um, they were related to James Morrison the famous fiddle player who uh, recorded in America in the 1920s and 30s and um, they would have been very friendly with the Morrisons and James James's siblings say he, he went to America in 1915 but um, my grandmother remembered she remembered uh, brothers of James's and uh, lots of his nieces and nephews and um, so the, her family she, she was Keenan but her mother was Scanlon and they were all hugely musical people and mm-hmm. um, I, I want well, this isn't strictly a family question, but I, I, I'm curious as to, you know, you're talking about having this cluster of uh, um, mainly box and melodeon players in Sligo, and then you're talking about flutes in Roscommon. Is that right? Do you have any kind of theories or about why instruments tend to find their ways to particular areas? Do you know what I mean? I, I think a lot of it was probably just availability. That right. if if um you'd find like in South somebody's Sligo, got one <laughs> if someone has one yeah and if someone has one the chances are they know where they got it so they know where to get another one so I think a lot of it might have been that like if you looked in South Slag around Calaval and Gertrude and Ballymost was all fiddle and flutes you would find it hard to find a melodeon but then this area was all melodeon players and then like um. If you went into Roscommon, it was all flute players. You'd, you'd go hard to find a, a, a fiddle player. And over the border in Leithrum as well, not too far from here is from Kieran and Tarman. And the back end of Arigna, which is just on the Leithrum and Roscommon border, it was all flutes as well. So instruments seemed to find an area. And that's something that happened all over the country. If you went to Clare, it was nearly all concertinas and pipes. There mightn't have been that many flute players. So a lot of it was just what was in your area, I think. Makes sense too, and I think a lot of stuff would end up just staying generationally in an area too. Like if you if you've got a good equi- good good equipment, it's going to get passed on, so it would stay local too. That was exactly it. Yeah, when you got something, you minded it because the money wasn't there to be replacing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you just you had mentioned that your dad no music, the Gormleys no music whatsoever. So then, what what happened? The, it it jumped and and found a new ember and lit and. Yeah, flames again. you can find that sometimes that it can kind of skip a generation. Uh, although the Gormleys, it, it was never in, in the Gormleys in any generation now. In my grandmother's family, it was the Keens, but the Gormleys just never had it. Um, I think my, but it really wasn't until I started playing and became well acquainted with it that I kind of found out about that connection in the Keenans uh, with my grandmother's mother and James Morrison and 
on that sort of thing. I wouldn't have been really aware of that. It, w- it wouldn't have been a thing you'd have gone into the house and listened to music or anything. Whereas with the Sheridans, my mother's family, music was their life. And like music was a huge part of my grandfather's life. And I, I remember uh, someone telling me one time, um, they were talking to him. It was actually the local priest and, and he'd been friendly with him now. And uh, the, the, not too long after he died, he, he was telling us that one time he was talking to my grandfather, he was saying that a good reel, it wiped the cobwebs off his heart. So music really was his thing. He loved it so much. That is a such a turn of a phrase. I'm going to try and slyly just drop that some night and pretend like I've just come come up with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I know, nice. It's, it's a great turn of phrase. And I, I'd never heard him saying it myself now, but I, I was told that that's what he said. And I'd well believe it. I could, I could hear him saying it. Like it's like something he'd say. Yeah. I, so I have, have one question before we before we break for a tune, which is, um, is is James Morrison, uh, is that Morrison's jig? Is that his? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah. I think I'm wondering. I... He recorded a lot. He recorded well over 90, 78 records in America, say between the years of about 1920 or 21 to 1936. He was hugely prolific. I was going to say, do you, do you know much about the, the mechanics of recording at that time in terms of accompaniment? Because um, we, we'd always kind of, myself and Darren had always um, wondered about the piano accompaniment in, in those recordings. And I remember talking to a flute player in, in Seattle about that, and he told me that it was... Well, the, 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 yeah, the whole accompaniment on a lot of those 78 records were literally, and it's no exaggeration to say, probably as bad as piano playing could get. Um, the, the, I heard a man say in one, tight, one night with uh, talking about a recording of Coleman, it was like there was a cat running across the piano. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose it, they, they, to give them a little bit of slack, it was a totally new thing. Traditional music had never been recorded at all really until 1916 but the big time for recording came with Coleman and Morrison and people like John McKenna and PJ Condon from about 1920 or 21 on there was no benchmark for piano playing and what a lot of times what happened out there was that um, prior to this time there was an awful lot of different genres of music being recorded and a big genre in New York where most of the recordings were early recordings were made was jazz so what happened was that a lot of jazz piano players got drafted in to try and put back into some of this traditional stuff. And really, they just didn't know. And if you don't know and you have nothing to listen to, you do what you think is right. And a lot of the times it just didn't work, you know. Um, People like Michael Coleman, if you can block out that, it was such creative, amazing music, probably still unsurpassed in an awful lot of ways. But Coleman wouldn't have been as fussy with recording as, say, someone like James Morrison. He used to drive Morrison mad and he used to actually, um, he learned the piano. He decided he'd have to learn it. So he used to learn it and write out the chords and he'd bring it to the piano player who was supposed to be backing him then. And they'd have all the chords in front of them, which, so, which is why on his recordings, the piano, while it's not great, it's not half as bad as what you would get on a Coleman recording, say. So did they need like uh, the theory? I think Dom had told me. Well, so I, 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 there was a there's a flute player in um, from Scarif who used to live in Seattle, uh, Leo McNamara, and he he told me that there was a that when they were using the studio, they had to use a, a union musician as well. So there was there had to be one union musician or something employed. Oh, so I believe that. Yeah, yeah. Player, I, I don't know uh, the ins and outs of that, but I, I, union was a huge thing, so I, I well believe it. Yeah. I because uh, the, the piano, as you said, like it didn't. It was new. It didn't make. It wasn't traditional within the 
the setting. So no, why, but it, why but it is it, it is really fascinating as well. Like like you're saying, Dahi, that that these are the first the first impressions of of this music being set down in something in a medium that's sort of permanent or semi permanent, and that's such a mind bending shift, right? Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Like when you think of like CDs and recordings now, it's to a penny, but at this time. Like, this was magnificent. Like, when these recordings came back to Sligo, like, people couldn't believe it. This was incredible that one of their own had gone to America. Like, when you went to America, you never came back. You were lucky to get a letter back. But then when you could actually hear these people playing, it had a tremendous influence. And people just just couldn't believe it. it it's, people, it's hard to grasp now just how mind-boggling and how phenomenal this was. But if you put yourself in... in someone sitting in a, in a kitchen in Sligo or Roscommon or Cork in 1924 with no electricity and no water and then you can take this big box and wind it up and listen to music. That's incredible. It, it's unbelievable. And it probably would have, would have been a social event as well because no, I would imagine not many people have a gramophone or whatever it's been played. If you're living in a house with no electricity, your, your Sony record player is not going to be any use. So, but exactly, it would have been yeah. a social occasion come around we're listening to the record and now we've got a Coleman oh yeah like it was a big event for an area when um, when a record came back like the, the communities would gather all into the house and they'd play it and play it and play it because the money wasn't there to be buying all the records either so when you if you were lucky enough to get a record player and a lot of the time what happened was record players were sent back from America if a sibling went to America or a son or a daughter, they'd save up and they'd buy a record player and they'd have it shipped home. And that's how a lot of them got back to rural areas, especially in Sligo first, because the money just wouldn't have been there to buy them. Mm-hmm. And there, there is just something that it's something fascinating to me about just the, the fact that you have an art form that is ephemeral, right, by its nature up to that point, And then suddenly there's a version of it that's set in stone. Just a version of it. It's and it would have been very. It would have been semi permanent because the records then would have been a lot. Um, what do you call it? the the acetate that it's the recorded shell. on? Yeah, the slack wears away pretty quick, so you're not getting as many plays. So it would have been this moment of knowing you're ingrained, but then not everyone's going to be able to listen to it because there's not as many record players around. Very interesting. I wonder how aware they were of what they were doing. I don't know, and that's something I've always wonder, wondered about. Um, if, if there was an era I'd love to go back to for a day, it would definitely be 1920s New York, um, just to find out this kind of thing. I don't know how aware they were. Um, it's, I think maybe it, it was, for the likes of Mighty Coleman, it was a way of earning a living. Um, it, music did, it wasn't as spontaneous maybe as people would think. The people who were really good at it, they did try and make a career out of it. Um, like Coleman recorded. And they were getting good money sometimes. You'd be getting like um, 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars, which in 1921, 22, 23, that was big money. And then like later, 1927, 28, 29, before the crash, you could have been getting as much as 200, 250, sometimes 300 dollars per side. Like it was huge money. It was several months wages in some cases. I don't know just how aware they were of what a legacy they were leaving, but I think sometimes it might have been just a case of 
you know, someone asked you to go in, you know, someone asked you to go in and do something for 300 bucks, you'd probably go and do it if it'll take you 10 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who cares what the piano sounds like? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, but the thing was, too, you had nothing to compare it to. So people just say, like, did they not know it was so bad? But if everybody's bad. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I'm being a smart Yeah. And what do you say, too, when it's handed back to you on the acetate because the process is not like they just had pro tools and hit space what do you think michael it would have been a long price and then you hear it yeah no let me do it again yeah that'll be another 300 and the the whole um it was such a laborious thing to record at that time too like up until um electrical recording came in about i'm not sure now but something like 1926 or 27 before that you had to use a straw fiddle which was a big fiddle with it just had the neck of a fiddle a bridge, some strings, and then a big metal horn coming out the side of it. And it was that so you could play super loud. So even these fellas, they weren't even able to go in and record on their own fiddles. They were just handed this thing and said, no, now play, you know. So that's even more amazing that they produced music of such, of such quality. Like I couldn't imagine going into a studio and someone just handed me a random accordion like to play. You'd, be, you'd die a death, you know. But these fellas just adapted so well and so easily. And what they created was, just absolutely mind-boggling. All right. Well, look. Let's have a tune, and then we'll we'll crack on. What do you fancy? What do you fancy playing? Um, I'll play a couple of um, a couple of reels that just kind of local to this area, Sligo. That I I got from recordings of um, a pair of brothers, Michael Joe and Larry McDonough, fiddling flute, which were amazing musicians. They were just great, and and they were. The most authentic Sligo music you'd probably ever hear, and the versions of tunes they had, was just um, was just incredible. So I'd play a couple of tunes that I learned from them. The first one is an old version of the Temple House reel, and I can't just think of the name of the second one, but I'll think of it in a minute. Thank you. 
lovely. Thank you for that. So we we kind of went off on a bit of a tangent. Um, hold on, hold on, before we, we go, did you remember the name of that? Because I recognise that tune, but I can't. I just, I, you know, I, I knew the name up until about four minutes ago, and I just can't think of it now at the minute. <laughs> All right, I'm sure it'll come back to this. Anyway, sorry. Okay, go on. So going back for a minute, because I don't want to skip over this. So if you're a young lad and you're six and you're looking at your, your granddad, how long, what was the process for you then to pick up an instrument and, and, and say, this is something I want to pursue? Um, funnily enough, I never, I, I never played at all when he was alive. Um, they, I sort of remember being scraping it on melodians and stuff that would have been up there, but I never, I never played a tune, whatever kind of messing I was at it. It was never a tune. Um, it was a couple of years after that, maybe very soon after that. Um, my uncle Michael Sheridan is a drummer and a very good drummer, and he was in a Cayley band. Actually, still in a Cayley band that would play for like the Cayley set dancing and all that, called the Swallow's Tail. And the accordion player in that band was an amazing accordion player called PJ Hernan that came from Galway, but he's been living in Sligo for since for 40 years, since the 70s. And um, they were practicing for a CD and there was a practice in my grandmother's house and PJ was there. And whenever there was music, I was mad to I was mad to listen to it, you know. So I went down to the sitting room and I sat in and I was listening to them playing and it was great. And. PJ, they started talking about my grandfather and Mick said, I must get you the box. So he got my grandfather's accordion and brought it down to PJ. And he played a reel called The Humours of Lissadell. And I can hear him playing it, yes. And I can see it in my mind's eye. And uh, PJ played and I, I was just, I, I couldn't believe it. It was just the most amazing music I'd ever heard live at that point. And I went up to my mother and I said, I'm going to play the accordion. So they felt at that stage I was a little bit too young, but maybe I think about... Two years later, or thereabouts, um, I, I harped on and harped on and harped on and eventually they brought me up and they brought me up to the Coleman Centre in Gertrude and up to PJ for lessons and that, that's where it started off. And after that, I never, never left it out of my hand at all. I just, I loved it. It was just amazing. Do you remember at that age, was it the instrument itself or was it been amongst the, the musicians and playing? Like, what, what was the draw for you? It was the instrument. I just, I just loved the sound. And my grandfather's box with this amazingly big, old, widely tuned Paula Soprani, big red thing. And it just, the sound just filled the room. And PJ was such a great player that I just looked at it and was like, I, I have to do that. I just, I have to, I remember it yet. I get, get goosebumps just thinking about it now, about that moment sitting there watching this. Because while I'd seen lots of music, I hadn't really seen that many people just sitting down on their own playing you know playing to that standard like it was just amazing music and i just said i wanted to do that you know i just i had to do it not that i wanted it, i had to do it that's you know it's really interesting when you talk about that proximity right the physical proximity because i think me and darren have both had an experience of sitting across from a lot of really good musicians and seeing it really close up not in a session just on the one-to-one -one thing where you're watching somebody playing the fiddle and you can see that there's work going on there that there's friction involved that there's all this sort of um physical activity going on micro theatrics <laughs> you know what i mean it's yeah. like it's amazing to so i totally get where you're get, get where you're coming from when you when you saw that like up close you know oh i loved it it was great and i um i progressed with pj then for several years and then um i became aware of kind of more more and more musicians and more and more accordion players and my grandmother pauline was 
without ever playing a tune, she was probably had was there's no probably she was the biggest influence on my early accordion playing without any shadow of a doubt because she exposed me to such amazing music and such amazing quality of music and uh, I used to spend a lot of time up there like when she'd be off work I'd cycle up every day I could my mother used to go mad because I was never at home at all I'd cycle up to listen to music up there and she'd be pulling out different tapes and CDs and even back EPs and and LPs (laughs) and she'd have them all lined up on the worktop for me to listen to and I remember um, the very first time I ever heard Paddy O'Brien the amazing accordion player and he, he was he was everybody's hero in the 50s he was the first really virtuosic player of the BNC accordion he, he was amazing and has a tremendous influence to this day with all his compositions but she pulled out an EP and it was The Banks of the Shannon and it was um, Paddy O'Brien with Seamus Connolly the fiddle player from Clare and Charlie Lennon the piano player and she says, listen to this, Paddy O'Brien was the accordion player. And she put it on and the first tune was Mayor Harrison's Fedora. I can hear it yet. And I just, I couldn't believe it. My mouth hit the floor. It was the nicest and tastiest bit of accordion playing I ever heard in my life. And from that moment on for several years, I just wanted to play like Paddy O'Brien. That was it. That's where I wanted to go. It, even though this was probably about the year 2000, my head was in 1954 when his first recordings came out. I got the, the huge um, fascination that came from his playing decades later. And, and very few of my generation, I'd say, got that. I was kind of, my mother does reckon I was born an old man, but, and I'm slowly growing into my age. But that was how I felt at the time. And I just, I wanted to play like that. And a few days later, she, she went looking then, when she knew you, she, you liked somebody, she'd go through all the tapes till she found more of them. And she found um, a tape that my granddad's brother, Liam, had sent back from London, which was kind of a compilation of Paddy O'Brien's 78s in the, that was made in 1954. And uh, there was one particular reel set, the Spike Island Lassies and Dog's Favourite. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I nearly cried. It was, the, it, to this day, it is the track that has influenced me most in accordion playing ever it was just incredible um why uh, it was just the flow he had the rhythm he had the way he done his roles it it technically it was just it was just so beautiful and so simple it sounded complex but it really wasn't that complex he was just doing everything right there, there was nothing wrong about it and i hadn't so I, I'd, never, I'd never heard Paddy live because he died in 1991 and I wasn't that aware of him until these recordings. But I, I, I just don't know what exactly was that hit me about that recording. But even like he, uh, if I just take up the, the box for a second, it's easier to explain. He started off the record like. Just that little bit. Even that bit. I'd find myself sitting down just playing that. I get fascinated with the phrase about how he just came into the tune with the small little details that he had that was just incredible. It was amazing. Even to this day, I just love it. It's such a lovely image of you visiting your nans. I used to, I used to go around to my nans on a, on a Wednesday when she'd be making stew and she'd be doing the, the, the other baking because the oven would be warm and it was just a time where the two of us got to hang out and have a chat and like that's a memory I hold dear but to have your musical influence come from moments like that is you're very lucky to have 
have had an experience like that. Oh, I was fierce lucky, fierce privileged. Um, and uh, you know, she, she she has Alzheimer's now, and she, she doesn't know anyone at all, and, and it's so sad to see. And and she's still a young woman; she's only seventy two. But the um, to see she had so much knowledge and and so much you know so much love to give and so much creativity to share that it's just she's not able to anymore you know it's, it's, it's an awful sad thing but I was very lucky and I'm the, I'm the only grandchild that really got that because I'm a good bit older than any of the rest of them six five years older than any of the rest so I was the only one got that chance to really spend that one-on-one time with her while I was old enough to remember and appreciate it you know and and her with you too like I think that that's a lovely thing from for her to have to ha- have had that's a if you hadn't have shown any interest well, that part of her life probably just would have stayed hidden to a greater extent. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I was, she used to really enjoy it and she used to love it. And, you know, if she wasn't um, an odd time, she she'd, she was off work too. She'd call down and she'd bring me up to Harland for the lesson because she used to enjoy meeting PJ. PJ was a friend of the family. Like she used to go in chatting him and she'd enjoy the crack, you know. She liked a story and she had plenty of stories. So she, she enjoyed meeting people and chatting to people. And after Granddad died, she hadn't that connection to musicians anymore. So whenever she got the chance to meet musicians, she loved to do it. And I, I remember one time at, um, kind of after that then, just to sidetrack slightly, I, um, I became more and more exposed to different musicians and going to workshops and summer school. And I went to uh, the summer school in Thrumshambo, the Joe Mooney Summer School in about 2002 or three, I'd say two. And um, it was the first time I met Joe Burke and I'd listened to Joe's Burke's music for years. And I was a huge fan at that time. And I, I was afraid of my life of him because he, like Joe Burke was like Elvis. Joe jo was, was, was huge, you know, and anywhere Joe went, you know, he, he was a big, tall man or is and, you know, huge beard, really imposing man. And I was afraid of my life to meet him. And even though I really wanted to be in his class, I was afraid of my life I'd be put into it in case that, uh, in case I wasn't good enough, do you know? <laughs> and, uh, but I went up and I got into Joe's class anyway and I had, I had the best week and I, I just, I, I just absolutely loved the music and I loved everything I learned about him. And after that, I, um, I got chatting to him and Joe knew my grandfather. So once I told him who I was, he, um, he knew the connection and all that. So I started going down to Joe for lessons then after that, down to his house in Kilnadema in Galway and used to go every second Saturday at 12 o'clock. And it was, um, it was the greatest, probably one of the greatest musical experiences of my life ever. I was so privileged. But just to, to, to sidetrack, um, the fla was in Letterkenny in 2005 and uh, four or five I'm not sure, not f- definitely 2005. And myself and Granny went to the under 18 accordion competition to listen to us. And uh, we were standing outside in, in the hall. And uh, li- like I said, Joe Burke was like Elvis. But Joe and Anne, h- his lovely wife, were walking in the door and he spied me and he came over and shook hands. And my Granny's mouth just hit the floor that Joe Burke would be coming over shaking hands with, with me. Like, <laughs> so like, I was so young, Love you know. It. Is um. If it's if it's not too personal, the with we, uh, your gran with dementia, did, is music something that she can still enjoy? Does she? Well, she she um I do, I do often quite often play a tune for her. She she'd smile like she smiles at it, and the foot will start going. You'll see the foot will 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 start wagging, and she she enjoys it, but like she has no concept of it anymore while it's playing. She enjoys it and it was a great thing for a while to, to kind of calm her down. It, it's a disease that can make people very agitated 
and, and very kind of angry, I suppose, at being trapped in their own body. Not so much anymore, but in the earlier stages of it. And it was a great way to calm her down. When you brought her to a concert or brought her to a session or even just played a tune in the house, she'd settle and she'd become relaxed and just become happier. And it was great to be able to do that, even if it was only for 20 minutes. It just made everything easier, do you know? And there was no one else in your family. I think you mentioned you have a sister. Is it one sister you have? One sister, Saoirse, yeah. And she, she'd have no more interest now in, in playing than the legs of the table. Um, she, 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 we did, we tried several times when we were young. We got her a concertina and got her a flute, but she just never took to it. But, but she loves different genres of music. She's listening to music all the time, like pop and jazz and swing and all this sort of stuff. I don't know what else. But just the traditional never grabbed her. She never had the same love for it, I suppose, yeah. I did. And that happens. That, that's okay, too. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, like on your dad's side, there was, there was no real interest from him. And the gomlings there. So we're kind of, of course, some people just kind of go, nah, you know what? The pops for me. Well, that, that was, was me you. for years. Yeah. What Darn. am I talking about? <laughs> yeah. Maybe when yeah. she reached 40, she'll have a midlife crisis and start a podcast about, oh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good place to have a, uh, a bit of a tune break. What do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> uh that that's funny um yeah i'll play um actually now that we've been talking about it i'll play that tune the spike island lassies oh great i love that it's a great tune i was going to ask you just before you start as well when you first went into went into his class uh joe burke's class um that first time were you breaking it oh absolutely yeah and you know <laughs> In the morning when you landed for the classes and from Shambo and I've been teaching there for years since and I, I love it and I do see the look of fear in every child and adult's face when you bring them into the room and you say, now we'll get everyone to play a tune on their own and everyone just goes, oh Jesus, because nobody wants to play on their own in front of everybody. But that's what you had to do and you had to play a reel and then the grade you accordingly but I was hardly fit to lift the accordion. I was just, it was such an... It, it, it was such an imposing thing to do, but I'm glad I done it, and I never look back since. It, Joe was definitely the, the um, he had a huge effect on me, not just musically but personally as well, and, and taught me so much about music and about how to listen to music. And uh, I could I could spend an hour talking about Joe alone. We've got time. <laughs> We've got time. Let's uh, let's uh, let's have the Spike Island glasses, and then. Yeah, and I'll put a reel after then that I learned from Joe called um, Farewell to Leithrum.
I'm not jumping too far in time now, but I, I think I'd like to start asking you about the um, the Fiddlers of Sligo project that you were involved in. So, is it better for you to explain about what you did at university to kind of contextualize that, or do you should we just jump straight into it? Because you, you'll explain it better than I will. Yeah, uh, well, not really. And I, 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 kind of what I done in university didn't really influence me that much in what I done. Um, I, I went to UCD and I, I studied um, I studied Irish and history. So I suppose I've always had a historical mind and I've always been inquisitive to um, what I can find out and I'd always be kind of searching for details. But how I get into um, researching music was, I don't really know how, but I've just always been, I have a very inquisitive kind of personality and I like to find out things and I like to know things. And... Um, while accordion playing would have been my first and main influence for many years, when I was about 16 or 17, um, I got really into fiddle music and I, I just, I, I got um, a completion recording of Michael Coleman that was brought out by the Coleman Centre called The Enduring Magic. And I put it on and I, ha- I had heard Coleman, but there's a difference between um, hearing someone play and listening to someone play. And I'd heard Coleman play, but I'd never listened to Coleman. And I was just absolutely fascinated. I couldn't believe the dexterity of the playing, the versions he was playing, the rhythm and the swing that was in it. And this was something that that has been lost in Sligo from everybody from, say, the ages of about 60 down. That really wasn't there anymore, that authentic Sligo style. And it was absolutely spellbound and amazed by it and um, then of course my granny had been telling me about um, James Morrison and that whole connection and it was a bit harder to get recordings of James but then when I did he he was for me just better again the energy that he had the rhythm that he had the spontaneity that was in his music just absolutely amazed me and by hearing them, it spurred me on to find out more about different players. And I searched out people like Paddy Killorn. And uh, you know, then the Coleman Centre used to bring out archival CDs and people like Tommy Cawley used to be on us and, and Joe Dowd, which would be Shamie's father, the famous guitar player and singer, and um, Patsy Cawley and people like that. And I just, I thought to myself, you know, if these are the people we know about, who do we not know about? And that's what I really wanted to find out because it couldn't have just been the Coleman and Morrison and Caloran and they call them the Holy Trinity. It couldn't have just been that they couldn't have been the only exceptional players. And I always thought that they must have been just the lucky ones that got to America and got to be recorded. So I wanted to search out these musicians and I hunted down every old person I could find. I say old, there were probably like 50. But um when you're 16, 17, everybody seems old. And I asked as many questions as I could and I found out as many. And people were very generous and people used to send me send me envelopes with, with handwritten notes about different musicians and, and tapes would be coming to the house. And if I met someone that have a tape of somebody from the 50s or, you know, so it all kind of... Did you know what you were doing? Like, did, did you have a... Um... Did you have a finish line? Did you know it was going to be a book? Did you not think it was going to be a, um, a personal project? What was the... Not, not a clue. It was just from... It was, it was purely and utterly and still is primarily just for my own interest. And um, how the book came about was I had all this material gathered. I don't have masters, actually. Uh, I forgot that now. I don't have masters in Galway <laughs> then, in, in, uh, in Irish studies. And I done my whole thesis on James Morrison. 
And I think that's where I got the university thing because I was thinking I knew I knew you'd done that. No, it's so long ago I'd forgotten. But I done the, the, <laughs> the, the I done the thesis on James Morrison. But I decided that everybody knew too much about his life in America, or not too much, but everybody knew about that. So what I really wanted to find out was about his life in Ireland. So the life he was born in 1893 and he left in 1915. That's the bit I wanted to find out about. And I was fascinated by just how interesting his life was. Like he, he worked for the Gaelic League as an Irish language and dance teacher. Which, which was amazing. And he just, like, he was, he would have been in the same company and befriended people like Porrick Pierce and Douglas Hyde. He, he ran a fesh called the Cheerill Fesh in Riverstown in, I think, 1911. I'm not sure. I'd want to read it again. And, uh, like, the adjudicators that he had organised was Porrick Pierce and Douglas Hyde. And this was something that was so interesting, aside from the music. And I finished that and I was really interested. And then that spurred me on to learn about not just the musicians but to learn about the people because everyone's music is influenced by what you grow up with and what you're exposed to totally outside playing music so that's what I wanted to find out about and I gathered so much material over the years and I'd been playing an awful lot of music and still do and uh, with, with, with a great great friend of mine called Oshie McDermott the fiddle player and um, I, I'd meet Oshie for coffee quite regularly and I said one time I'm thinking about doing a book about fiddlers in Sligo and I was telling him all about it and you know he was so enthused by it and so interested I said you know would you be interested in getting involved because you know while one pair of eyes and ears are great two is better and Oshin has a great interest in the music and he was so eager to learn about it and, and to be exposed to some he wouldn't have had access to a lot of this material that I had before and he was such a great addition to the project and it was just it was such a pleasure and thankfully it's gone very well and people really liked us, which is, is the main thing. So what was the process then? So you, you had your personal collection of, of stories from other fiddlers and then you, was it more, what was your approach to try and find out more about James? So um, I, I, I talked to, to my, my grandmother first and she, she had a few great stories and then she, she put me in contact with um, Pascal Morrison, which was James's uh, nephew and uh, he lives in Strand Hill he's very old now but so he, he was he pointed me in, in the direction of other sort of relations the information that was left here was quite limited but I um, I sort of I, I delved into the archives of, of Conor and Aguilga up in Dublin and the uh, Irish Folklore Commission in, in UCD and then I, I scanned like old newspapers for clippings about where he played and who he played with and the fetches he was involved with and everything else and it was really kind of detective work. And then I um, I thought to myself, like, if there's not that much here, but there was still enough to, I suppose, to, to get a good grasp on things, there must be the same amount, if not a bit more, to grasp from people still alive in America. So I um, I got on to several different people I had contacts with in America. I got in contact with an amazing fiddle player and uh, called Veronica McNamara. And Veronica had been taught by James in the 40s and she had these wonderful snippets of information. And it's, it's like it's like putting together a detective case. One person leads to another and, and eventually it all came together. Do you know? That's amazing. So what was the kind of um, details that she would give you that would cast light on him? As a person so it was kind of like, like when, when I was going to Joe Burke kind of between tunes he'd tell a story so like he was telling her um, he had been telling her things about you know in Ireland that he used to used to cycle to a place called Manor Hamilton 
and uh, which which is he actually funnily enough he would have, he would have had to pass my front door here to get to where he was teaching in Manor Hamilton mm-hmm. and he taught dancing in St. Clair's Hall down there and uh, then he, he spent time uh, down in uh, Tor McKeady in Mayo in Colosh the Connacht and that was the um, that was the main so was Irish college um, started up by, by Conor and Gaelica in the um, in the whole of the Connacht region it was the main one and that was started up by Parik Pierce that was kind of Parik Pierce's baby so he was exposed to such of this and they were little details um, with the first one that I would have got from Veronica um, I was very lucky that Harry Bradshaw had done some amazing research on James in the 80s and he had these nuggets of information that was brought out with a, a double cassette completion of James's mu- music called The Professor so a lot of what I done was I took small details that Harry had and tried to expand them to find out more with the resources that maybe weren't available as easily in the 70s and the 80s when Harry was doing this amazing work. Harry's work was a great foundation. And um, I, I, I contacted other people in America like uh, Chris Bowles. Chris came from uh, Lock Bow, which is... is, is quite close to me here as well and while Chris didn't know James in America he ran a pub called the Castle Inn and he knew uh, Paddy Killorn very well and he had lovely snippets of information about these people that Paddy had told him so it was kind of you were going into you know secondary and, and third sources of information which was amazing but still a direct line to the source which is always important when you're trying to mould a story together I suppose Were you were you happy with what you finally managed to construct absolutely yeah yeah the the um the thesis was great it it was it was and is kind of the only major study on james morrison's life in ireland it is the only place you can get all the information in the one place which was great <laughs> and and then w- w- with the book as well we, we were so yeah. thrilled with that and the response that came out of it um and and i suppose what what i was extremely eager to do was that in, in Sligo and in Ireland at, at the moment, and as a natural thing, regional styles have died out and there isn't as much emphasis on them because people have s- such exposure to different music. And, and that's OK, too, not, not at all given out about that. But it w- would be a shame if all this information and the old versions of the tunes were all, was all going to be lost. So I figured that even if people aren't actively playing it, it would be such a shame if they didn't have access to it. So if people want to find out about it and they want to play it, they have somewhere to go now as a starting block. And one thing we done as well, and I was conscious of at the time, was to put in the sources of all the recordings that we used for the transcriptions. So that, you know, if people want to go and hear this, they can go to that and they can go, you know, they can find it. You'll find it in archives or you can contact me or you can. Several of it was commercially available. Not that many, but several bits were commercially available. So you have access to this now all in one place, which is was while I had to work for years to try and, and compile all this and get recordings. People have easy access to it now. And hopefully that will be able to not revive it, but certainly expose it more, I suppose, to what it was. Here's one for you then that kind of loops in what you've just said and we've kind of touched on it throughout the interview and in other ones where you said your mum said you were born an old man and there's a it's a, it's the style there's a style which was around say 60 years ago or more if you're looking back at Morrison did you get a sense of 
where the music sat within the zeitgeist at the time right was it was it niche or was it a popular music like where was it if 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 i think it's kind of accepted that the music is is start is influenced by fashion right so it's stylistic it comes and it goes in and out of fashion so when morrison and uh, coleman were at their height and were there in america did you get a sense of in what phase the the music was in was it in fashion out of fashion it, it um the music wasn't a terribly fashionable thing to do at that time in ireland and for many decades after it, it was it, like with la valley here beside us a lot of it was kept in small communities and there was pockets of it so say in sligo there was a pocket around um drum finn where morrison came from into riverstown up to Lockbow, small pockets all isolated areas, kind of townlands. So there might have been only three or four musicians in a lot of these townlands. But then you went to somewhere like um, Kilavel, which was where very close to where Michael Coleman came from. And there was a huge pocket of music. And they used to say at one time you could hand a fiddle to anybody coming out of Kilavel Chapel on a Sunday morning and they'd be able to play a tune. It was really embedded in community. So it wasn't a hugely popular thing, say, county-wide but within small pockets within the community, it was hugely popular. So in the whole county, there probably wasn't 50 musicians, but there was 10 musicians of enormous quality in these little pockets of areas, and that's how the music survived. And that's why we're lucky enough to have um, music of this quality today, I think. With the with the book, you, it, that's still for sale, right? I just saw it earlier on on Amazon. But wh- where is the best place for people to to get it from? Um, you can get it on uh, the uh, the handiest way. If you go onto our Sligo Fiddle Facebook page, there's a little link to um, the shop there. You'd be able to find it there easily enough. It's in uh, available from Olsen, uh that website, Custy's website. Uh, Custies and Ennis, Custies Music.ie, I think it is, um, Amazon, as you say. And um, in a lot of kind of independent, smaller bookshops around the place, I don't know about Australia. I was just going to say that. But uh, online I I... Um, is probably the best way from Australia. I wish I hadn't mentioned the the big A word. Uh, it should have started with the Custies and the like the, the independents. We'll, uh, we'll snip it out and let you keep your cool. Nah, I said it. And then I get to say a word. Um, what I'll do is, though, in the show notes, I'll make sure there's a link for anyone that's listening to this right now in the show notes. There'll be links to that. Uh, Dahi, do you reckon we could have a, another tune? And then I've got some questions around your uh, record. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. What do you fancy? Um, I play uh, I play a couple of jigs that would be very um, well-known with Sligo. The first one is a lovely tune called Teller I Am. And there was an accordion player... Um, he died a few years ago that used to play a lot around Sligo called Kevin O'Brien and he was great crack and he was a very good player now he came from uh, not too far from us here from Leithrum just outside Drum Kieran but he lived in Sligo town for years but every time uh, someone would ask him for tell her I am he'd say tell her feckin nothing <laughs> <laughs> he was great crack so I'll play tell her I am and the second jig is a tune that I am <clears throat> would have come to me from the playing of um, Joseph McDonald's and the Flinsman that the band my grandfather was in called uh, Tatter Jack Walsh. Thank you. 
that little vamp or what I don't know if I don't know if vamp is the right word or backbeat's the right word, but it's definitely on the end. There's a sound and it's just it gives it a lovely drive. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely, lovely tune. Tatter Jack Walsh, um, Paddy Fitzgerald played that for us um, on his when we chatted to him. Oh, that's back. one I've been meaning to go back to now and I forgot about it until you said it. I, must, I, I did see it, but I just never got a chance. To, I must listen to that. Ah, Paddy and Joe are both really, really worth listening to. I, I've met Joe a few great. times. I never met Paddy now. I met Joe several times um, back here. Right, right. I, of course. I, yeah. So I just, I was going to ask you, before we leave the Sligo style, and I'm, look, it, it's, it's getting old hat asking about what the styles are, but I'm going to ask you how you define it, just because you're, you're someone who, obviously, you're living it and you've, you've studied it. How, what's your take on how do you define the Sligo style? The, the Sligo style is um, it, it is based totally and utterly around a very distinct rhythm and, and the rhythm has always been key to Sligo and one of the things that was um, kept in Sligo for years and years is that the music was built primarily for dancing and like in the jigs there was a hugely um, it was a very dotted rhythm, a, a hugely, uh, if I take off the box to, to, to kind of as an example, one thing, they put a huge emphasis on um, the first and the third beat. So like, so it was built for dancing. It was very much a dance music. In the reels, uh, one thing that was uh, is very apparent in the reels is how much of the style was centered or uh, centered totally around the fiddle. It definitely was very much a fiddle tradition. There would have been a very flowery kind of double rolls like things like that. And um, it, 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 it's very much centered around like in a real um, God, it's, it's hard to explain it. When you listen to someone like uh, James Morrison is the rhythm that was there was just incredible. Like it was so it was it was it's a pulsating kind of a style. It's a very spontaneous style. There was a great um a, a great understanding of what rhythm was and how to best bring out the rhythm when phrasing the tune. If that makes sense in any way, shape or form. <laughs> Not completely and you, you've actually by demonstrating you've enlightened me on a, a few a few bits. It's one of those things that well, I think when you're very close to the music, it's a little bit, um, a little bit more obvious. And as a as a learner or someone that's still kind of fresh to it, it's really nice to have someone like yourself kind of literally point at things and say, "Here, see see that bit there. That's that's the bit." So thank you for that. Um, I, I was going to ask you, how do you go about then, as a contemporary musician, go about synthesizing your own style out of all that stuff that you've imbibed all those years from your granny's kitchen to um, I suppose I've been so lucky to be exposed to um, so much great music and, and I've been lucky too in that I had such an interest in sourcing recordings and sorting, sourcing styles and I've been privileged to have been able to do that and to have been encouraged by so many people to do it which is it, it, it's it's you know, p- people forget that it, you know, it takes a community to raise a child and it took a community to make me into the musician I am and to make me um appreciate just how lucky I am to have been exposed to such music. I suppose one of the best bits of advice I was ever given as a musician years ago was by uh, was from the great famous accordion player Finbar Dwyer. 
And I asked Fimber one time, you know, what what makes a good musician a great musician? How do you get to that next level? What is it? And he says, Dahi, there's only one trick to becoming a great musician. You figure out what you're not able to do and don't do it. He said, play to your strengths. <laughs> and that was the, the best bit of advice, bar none, I've ever gotten in my whole life. So I've always kind of worked on my strengths and and like there's I wouldn't be great on say like doing low rolls or like you can't do F rolls on a box. So I've adapted my music to mold around the things that I'm not able to do and to bring the best out of what I can do. And one thing that I love and I, I think I, I've kind of tried to capture was to be able to capture a lot of the fiddle music on the accordion by incorporating little techniques like runs and double rolls and a really crisp ornamentation that will be kind of um, very much associated with the fiddle that maybe wouldn't have been done that much on the accordion. And you can do so much on the accordion to bring in that to your music. So I've tried to mould everything that I've learned into a style that, that I enjoy and that I'm comfortable with. And I think other people seem to enjoy it too, which is great. Was there anyone else, or is there any, anyone else that... that kind of has pursued that fiddle on the on the box like that um uh, joe burke in the 1960s would have been um one of the first to really kind of mold the irish american fiddle music by playing with people like andy mcgann and paddy caloran and larry redican and especially lad o'byrne joe would have brought home an awful lot of that music and an awful lot of the fiddle versions like joe would have been uh, one of the first accordionists playing the big fiddle tunes like Bonnie Kate and um, Jenny's Chickens and uh, so many tunes like that. And so Joe would have been a pioneer of that in the 60s. Um, after that, re- it's, it's hard to say. There's elements of it in a lot of players' um, music, but very few players have tried to mould the fiddle music in such a big way to the accordion playing. If if that makes sense. Mm. Do do you ever find yourself um, wrestling with the music, or wrestling with the instrument? Not not really. Um, no, I've I've always been very comfortable with it. And uh, one thing that I, I'm very appreciative of, and I do recognize, is to recognize the limitations of what you have, and recognize the limitations of what the instrument has. So that I generally try, I, I just I just don't attempt things that don't suit me or things that I know won't, are not going to work for me. Like there's a lot of new tunes and stuff that even if I like them, I just know I'm not going to be able to play that well. So I just don't bother. Uh, that's not saying I don't learn tunes. I learn tunes. I, I try and learn several tunes a week if I can. But if, if there's something that just doesn't appeal to me, I just don't try and do it, which is something that I would have done when I was young. I would have tried to play everything and try to fit in with exactly what was happening. But it just doesn't work like that. You have to find your path and go on it and go on it with conviction and bring the best out uh, of your music. And, and when you're learning new tunes every week, uh, like what are you looking at for other? Do you still have a? Do you still have the ability? At the at this point that you are, where you're such an advanced musician, to be able to hear something and just go, ah, oh, that's beautiful. I oh, absolutely, to, yeah. Oh, definitely, that. yeah. It just and and you know, it could be tunes that that even I would have heard years ago, but then when you go back and re-examine them, you'd hear something just beautiful in it. Like just the other day, it's a reel that I've been playing for years, but a, a reel called the Beauty Spot or not the Beauty Spot. It comes after the the Sunny Banks, and um, I was going through a. a 
box of stuff here and uh, I came across um, a recording of Michael Coleman um, playing us and Tom Morrison playing us in the uh, about 1927 and it was a totally different version I just go oh my god that's beautiful but I'd obviously listened to it before but it just didn't grab me the way it did on that day and I had to sit down immediately and learn it you know? so things still grab you um, definitely and like any musician who thinks they have it all learned isn't going to go too far because there's something to be learned from the best of players and something to be learned from the worst players. Everybody has something to give as long as you're willing to listen for it and to learn from it. So then how do you go about taking that philosophy into the studio? Right, so you... The studio was... Um, th- that was that was an experience and it was it was a great experience i i, I tried that, that in actual fact that was the second album i done well i kind of done half an album before and um, about two years before that and i hated every note of it it just didn't work it, why it, it the playing was fine and you know people would have still said that was lovely but it just wasn't me i tried to get it too perfect i tried to make an album and that was i think the thing i got wrong the first time around i went into the studio and i sat down and i said okay i need to get this right now so like all the notes were in the right places very nice tunes all the rest but it wasn't me it wasn't what i enjoyed playing it just didn't have the spontaneity and the heart and the rhythm and the soul that attracts me to music so much so after a lot of contemplation i just said i'm just gonna have to dump it so my piano player on on uh, on fiddling without a bow is is catherine McHugh case we do call her and she is from uh, east galway right in the heart of um east galway music and and she's a great fiddle player as well but she has an, an amazing sense of musicality and her heart is like my own very much in accordion and fiddle music so I was talking to Case one day and uh, only about a month before that we hadn't really planned to do it and she says um, you know we should we should go down to Jack Talty and go in someday and I says ah jeez I don't know so I was thinking about it and I met Jack at a festival in Carrick and Shannon the sessions by the Shannon and uh, I was chatting Jack and I says myself and Kate McHugh might go down to you so he took out the phone and we, we were both to be playing at the Ennis Tradfest uh, which does be uh, around the start of November. So he says, why don't you come in the Friday on the way to Ennis? So we did. So we went down to the studio. Uh, we near enough picked all the tunes there and then, and I think we came out with nine tracks done the first day. <laughs> so it was, a t- <laughs> it, was, it was a totally different mindset. Just went down and played tunes we enjoyed. And we've been playing together for years. And that was the only way to do it. So when I tried to make it, I wasn't able to. And when I went in just to play, it just all, all the cars lined up. <laughs> It's funny how you, it's the, those intangibles are, are, are absolutely captured in a record. The, the tension in the room, the, the free flowing nature, the, the, the conversations that are happening that are not on tape, they, they go into the music and they come across, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we, we've both been friendly with Jack for years and it's such a lovely, relaxing place. And it just, it just all worked. Now, I, I could go in tomorrow and do the exact same thing and it mightn't work. But just on that particular day, it just, everything nothing went wrong it could have gone better and we went down the second day and finished it then and that was it done but it was just um i suppose my father to say it's better to be born lucky than rich and he's dead right it was just pure luck on that day there's something in the production in it too i was i was listening to it earlier on oh, well, um and particularly what was i listening to the nightingale and the what's the one after that and but there's um there's an aesthetic in the production which is gorgeous and 
I'm not I'm not a producer, so I'm not. I probably wouldn't be able to find it anyway. But uh, between the the playing and the and the production, it's it has a beautiful um, timestamp to it. Like I know I know it kind of it, it kind of as a whole kind of talks to an older style of music. But the production as well has a has a just enough of that mixed in with a really nice high fidelity to to sit in a really nice interesting place. So I, I found that an added not a bonus but a real nice added texture to the recording. It was such a pleasure to, to work with Jack and, and that's something that Jack would have taken kind of of his own accord to do that. I absolutely gave him no direction at all. After we finished it I just said to Jack give me back an album. So he sent me back one mix a few days later or maybe a week later and I said just do that with them all. But one thing that Jack does and he'd never say it, but I just know one thing Jack does, and it's an amazing skill, and it's a skill that, that I, I don't know how he, he, he does it, but Jack listens to the music, not the tunes. And he listens to the music as a whole, and he builds a package around that, which is great. So as you said, it, it is towards an older style of accordion playing. And while it doesn't sound like it's from the 50s, you can hear that the whole production quality is very respectful of what the music is. He didn't try to make it sound like a new album, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And look, I, I want to say something, and hopefully I don't sound like too much of an idiot. But uh, listening to those two tunes, for me, it's probably just the tunes, but like the production definitely plays an element. But for me, I was I was transported. I was I could hear I could I could hear the sea. I could smell the seaside. I was, and I I have not spent a lot of time in the west, but I was in that for me kind of Galway region. It was and maybe just knowing I was speaking to you today, I was bringing all this stuff up in my mind. But when I actually listened to it, like I tried to listen to it, and not just let have it flow over me. Completely, I was taken away. Loved it, loved it. Ah, thanks very much. That that's a huge compliment to get. I suppose. Um, what waltzes are? I love waltzes, and you know people don't play waltzes near enough now. And as an accordion oh, player, waltzes yeah. were was a, a a huge thing that all the great accordion players played back in the day. Like even Joe Cooley on. Uh, from that recording we were speaking about earlier, like Joe was a master right. waltz player and, and he uh, um, he would have played the, the, the Nightingale. And the second one I got from a great player from Nina called Francie Brereton. And he would have been a contemporary of Paddy O'Brien. And the dexterity and the clarity and the class that they brought into tunes, and they're very simple tunes, waltzes, was just mind-boggling. And people don't play them anymore. And they're beautiful tunes. I, I think they're great, you know. I wonder if the waltz is, um, is a style of tune that has so fallen out of fashion because of the difficulty that we have in sitting on the couch like Darren was talking about earlier. Like sitting, I mean, I know it's a dance, but there's there's something about it that demands a bit of patience. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a very good point. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, But everything's cyclic. You wouldn't know how all that sort of stuff will come back again, do you know? Aye. Right. So I had, I had one uh, one more thing that I wanted to ask you about before we before we have a last tune, which is just I'm I'm so fascinated by the way that history is just embedded in you and you're embedded in the history, you know. And I and I I sort of recognize something of my own fascination with history and the way that you've been talking, you know. And your your description of like the fact that um, James Morrison would have walked past your front door on his way down to St Clair's to to teach doesn't that just blow your mind 
Oh yeah, it's amazing, you know. And like I've, I've, you know, this, this is this interview is going to bring out the huge geek I am. But the um, like I've, this is no joke now. I, I've gone down and just sat outside like Saint Clair's and looked in and pictured them walking in the door, you know. And uh, like I, I've, I was in New York uh, last November, twelve months. And uh, I was walking around and I went up to Columbus Avenue. And of course, it's nothing like it would have been when Morrison lived there. But I just tried to picture him walking down the sidewalk, walking down the footpath and, you know, going through Central, Central Park. I was wondering, like, I wonder did Coleman ever walk through here? Or I wonder did Pally Caloran ever go through that gate? You know, it's, it, it, it's, I'm a firm believer in if you don't know where you came from, you'll never know where you're going. And it's important why no one needs to be stuck in the past. It's very important to recognize the past. The past is what makes us what we are today, be it for good or for bad. But the whole sociological history of music and culture is so important and it's so embedded in the music. And I just I love to be part of that and to think that I'm going to be part of that for a future generation. Like I would love to think in 20 or 30 or 40 years time when I'm an old man, that someone will listen back to, to the Nightingale and Francie Burton's and they'll say, God, wasn't that lovely? Because that's what I've done to so many people. And if I can do that to two people, my musical career has been a success. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I have to say that last bit, both of us have been grinning like idiots here, just looking at each other. So th- thank you so much for that. that uh, thank you. Beautiful. Um, so what, what do you fancy playing for us? Um, I'd, play, uh, uh, I'd finish off with a couple of reels again. The first one is a tune that I, I love and I am... Um, it's actually in the book it's a lovely tune called my love is fair and handsome and the second uh tune is a tune i've been playing for years and years and it kind of ties so many of my musical heroes together um a tune actually composed by paddy killoran the maids of mount kisco and uh it's a tune that has been recorded by great players for years and years and years but my favorite recording ever of it was by the man who gave me my first tune pj hernan recorded in about 1989 with uh, Artie Midlane. So I'll try these two tunes. Thank you. 
I love that last section. It's quite philosophical. It's lovely. It is. You know, it It also reminds me, you think about that and think about the passage of time and people are no longer with us. And I mentioned early on in the interview, Kieran Carson's book, Last Night's Fun, and how he talks about Joe Cooley right at the end. And Kieran Carson himself is no longer with us and published a book of poems before he died, which is an amazing book of poems and an amazing sort of farewell to the world. And all of that comes into my mind as I'm listening to Dahi talking no. about James Morrison. Have you, got, have you listened to that Bowie track I, I mentioned since? No, I haven't. I can't. I'm too... Um, <laughs> I'm too sensitive. Were you a Bowie it. fan? Not really. Yeah, right. no. I'll but, have to uh, play it for you. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a very. We have to play. It's exactly. You have to play the both both tracks, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Well, um, I think you'll know um, "New Career in a New Town." Mm-hmm. You you won't be really familiar with the the later one. The I can't give everything away. Mm-hmm. It just I just think it's very fitting with, with where we went in this interview. So it's it was kind of it was fitting that it happened in the same week. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Dahi. Yeah, thanks, Dahi. Look, final reminder, if you haven't subscribed, have a look at your podcast app, wherever you're listening to this on right now. Before you close it, just tap subscribe. Rate us would be even better. Leave us a couple of stars. Review five would be amazing. If you can leave us a written review, absolutely brilliant. And then finally, tell a mate, share it around. That's really, 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 really love your help with that this week. And what an episode to do it with. It's a, I think it's a shining example of, of what this whole project is about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. And so see you next week. Good luck. Hi, my name is Rosa. Please become a subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.